reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, and we'll read through verse 32. <clears throat> this is also God's holy word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, <clears throat> let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. <clears throat> Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. <clears throat> be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. <clears throat> May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word indeed is clear, that your word is authoritative, <clears throat> that your word is necessary, and that your word is sufficient, that you have commanded, thou shall not steal. And Father, we pray that we would be humble before you, that we would search our own hearts, that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts, that you would root out not only the acts, but you would root out the heart of sin, the desire for it. Father, we pray that we might acknowledge that we're in need of your word, for your guidance, for your Holy Spirit's power to rid us of the sin that is within us. We acknowledge, Father, that there is no perfection in this life, but Father, you, had told, you have told us in your word that we need uh, holiness, and that without holiness, no one will see you. Father, we pray that we might desire our Lord Jesus Christ. He indeed is our hope for forgiveness. He is our righteousness. Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, that you might show us wonderful things in your word, that you might show us the more excellent way. But Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you might do a mighty work of conversion. Father, we thank you that you are indeed are the one who has, give, who has shared with those who are in need. You have given us of your son, your precious son, your only son, your only begotten son. And Father, we thank you that you did not withhold that which is perfect from us, those of us who are unworthy, those of us who are undeserving. We thank you, Father, for you indeed have given that which is good. We thank you for him. We pray, Father, that... Jesus, your son, will be exalted, and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> As you think about our society, think about the years in which you've lived in our society, perhaps you've thought through what a horrible nuisance that theft is. You think about the various forms of theft. There's so many you think about our culture. We have so many words for theft and the, the means by which people can steal. Just think about the common ones. You, you open your front door expecting to see an Amazon or a UPS delivered package and it's not there. You have a doorbell camera, but the person already snatched it. Think about how many packages are stolen. Think about in our Twin Cities, the prevalence of carjackings or car theft. Or you think about the the, the nuisance that someone's car gets broken into, there's glass all over his seat, and uh, he has to get it repaired, so he has to miss a day of work because someone saw something he liked in your car. And it, it may have been nothing, right? It may have, we've seen this happen before. Someone had an expensive glass case, but there were no sunglasses in there, and they, they took this expensive case that was, wasn't that valuable. But still, there was the broken glass the nuisance and having to deal with that. You think about how uh, certain people, instead of working hard, they see the need, I, I will just go and take from others. And you ask, how much time, how much effort is spent dealing with this nuisance? How much better you think things were in the garden, how they could have been, when people were looking out for the profit and the well-being of others? Here, we think about how the way our society even deals with it. 
I'm going to tell you this. Property crime is not really punished. It's not. Realistically, it's not. <clears throat> what ends up happening is that they just say, let the insurance, insurance companies cover it. Ultimately, it means that the theft you're still paying for. You're paying for the higher cost of goods. <clears throat> Society, at times, condones theft. You think about someone who kills one person is a murderer. And you kill tens of thousands, you're a conqueror. And here, you think about petty theft, the society can say, okay, well, that's, that's not good. But then somehow when groups of mass groups of people do it, then it's acceptable. Same principle. But is it acceptable in the eyes of God? No. The eyes of man may approve of it. The government may not punish for it. But ultimately, before God, it is still sin. Here we think about the transition that the Apostle Paul has made in this book of Ephesians. Here, he speaks about, in this letter, the glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks about all that God has done on behalf of his beloved people. There's so much for which we ought to be thankful for. What God the Father has planned. What God the Son has done in his redeeming work. What the Holy Spirit does within our hearts to purify a people of his very own. Here we think about the transition. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, God's mighty work. And then Ephesians 4 through 6, this then is how you ought to live. And we've already made this transition. <clears throat> and in, in the previous section, the Apostle Paul, this is chap, chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, the Apostle Paul spoke generally about the need for change. The need for new life in Christ. The, the need for putting off the old man, putting on the new. And in verses 25 through 32, the section that we're in now, he's speaking specifically about areas. Areas of your life, areas of my life. And that this putting off, these are specific things that must be put off, putting off stealing, and instead putting on diligent work, diligence in honest work, and then sharing with those who have need. So we see in this verse, Ephesians 4.28, your new life in Jesus means forsaking theft, but instead laboring diligently in honest work and sharing with others. Your new life in Jesus means forsaking theft, but instead laboring diligently in honest work and sharing with others. We'll look at this in three points. The first, the first point is stop stealing. Second, labor diligently in honest work. And third, give generously. Here, I want, you to, I want you to listen up. If you think I'm coming after you, I am. I am coming after you. I don't want you to think, hey, you know what? I've never stolen anything in my life. So this commandment and this, this, uh, this instruction just doesn't apply to me. So I'm just going to close my Bible and I'm going to move on. These commandments apply to all of us because the heart of sin is in all of us. So if you think I'm coming after you, I am. I'm coming after all of you. I'm coming after myself. So here, this first point is stop stealing. We have this transition. <clears throat> and the mention in verse 17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? They walked in the futility of their minds, according to a darkened understanding. There was willful ignorance that resulted in alienation from the life of God. There's a hardening in heart uh, due to the callous conscience. There is a giving over to and a guiding, a guiding of their own sensuality that leads to greater impurity without restraint. That there's nothing enviable about this life. There's something tragic about it. Here, the Apostle Paul goes from the general to the specifics. New life in Christ means that falsehood in your life must not receive any quarter. Falsehood must die. Our Lord Jesus is the truth, and there is no place for falsehood in the life of a Christian who is following Jesus Christ. New life means that your anger and the, your anger and the sinful pride that fuels it must die. New life in Jesus Christ means that you must stop stealing. Instead, you must be diligent in honest work and share with those who have need. 
This is the topic that we're on today. He continues also in chapter 4 that we give up corrupting talk and we stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Here we think about the sin of, of theft, the actual act of theft. Think about how many terms that we have for theft and varieties of theft in our society. We have larceny, robbery, burglary, mugging. We have heists. In fact, our, our society uh, almost approves. You, you see some of these movies, they're about heists. And it wasn't just recently, it's, it's been for a generation or two where movies are made about how uh, these grand heists were, were used to steal jewelry and art and, and whatever. And it seems like it's entertainment. You have identity theft. You have shoplifting. You have wire fraud. You have mail fraud. You have extortion, embezzlement. You have fishing. I'm not talking about fishing for uh, meat in the water. We're talking about a PH, not an F, right? So not fishers of men, but fishing, uh, get, getting valuable logins and passwords uh, from, from the internet. Oftentimes, older people are victim to this. Right? So you think about how many terms there are and how many ways that someone can steal from another person. You think about how much money is lost in identity theft. Someone opens up a credit card under your name and your credit is just going, going down the tube. And you only find out about it when, let's say, you you apply for a credit card or you apply for a loan and suddenly you notice that, hey, my credit got a lot worse. Why is that? It's because some John Doe has opened up a credit card in your name. The variety of these terms about theft show the sophistication of the sin of theft. Here we think also about the sinful roots of theft. So it's not only the act that God is concerned about. He's concerned about the roots behind it. The root of unbelief. When you think about the pagan culture, <clears throat> think about idolatry, immorality, theft, deception, take whatever you can get. This concept of a loving God who is all-powerful, not known. Worshipping many false gods, for example, the Greeks and the Romans considered their gods to be whimsical, to be, uh, to be emotionally led. And you think about some of the stories about Greek and Roman mythology. These, these gods were no, no different, really, than men. Here, for the non-Christian, for the pagan, the ends justify the means. The end of making a whole ton of money. If that's, if that's the end, then whatever means it takes to get there is fine. Think, think for a simple example. Ephesus, what Paul encountered in the book of Acts, that was the background of this letter. You have people who had a business of making statues of Artemis because here Artemis was, was worshipped in the city of Ephesus. I, I'm making some, some extrapolations here, but you can imagine these silver statues, probably something erotic of Artemis, used for idolatry, leading people into sin. But there's profit for this person. And anyone who stands in that way must not only be removed... He must be killed. Here, think about how quickly and easily this greed, this greed comes upon people. We read about it in Psalm 62, verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increased, set not your heart on them. We're going to talk about greed in a moment. Right now we're talking about unbelief. You see, see how this works, unbelief. There's a setting of heart on wealth. There's a willingness to do all kinds of things to get it. Extortion. Robbery. This is the progression. But instead, we have taught in God's word. Is that God is sovereign. 
This is completely different than the rest of pagan culture. God is sovereign. He's the owner of all. Psalm 24, verse 1. The, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. What is God saying in that verse? He's saying he owns everything. It all belongs to him. Nothing is... We establish private property, yes. But God is saying every ounce of wealth, everything material is his. He owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the generous provider to all. He is the wise distributor of wealth. This is why the sin of envy is a sin against God. Because he is the one who determined who gets what. Here, you think about the lessons from our Lord Jesus. He commands us that we would pray for our daily bread. That God knows your needs. And he bountifully provides for them. Yet God also uses means. Through the means of man's diligent labor, God provides for him. You see that in Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. God has also made promises for the righteous. Psalm 37, verse 25. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. Here God is promising, those who are righteous, those who follow Jesus Christ, they're not going to starve. That's his promise. So you think about the, the roots of unbelief. Not having that understanding about who God is, what he's promised his people. There's also greed and covetousness that are at the root of theft. The desire for more. That which is insatiable. <clears throat> Here, when you think about having a shortage, it's something as simple as toilet paper. You think about this, how tragic it would be if you ran out of toilet paper. Can you imagine this? You'd have to find a horrible substitute whether some kind of leaf or whatever's the case, you can understand how people would say, well, then, then I need a hoard toilet paper. I need to have you know, uh, a Costco-sized package of it. Desire for more. And, and you apply that to wealth, too, which is much more expensive, costly than toilet paper. Here, regarding greed and covetousness, there needs to be the reminder for all of us not just for little children, but for adults. Because it seems like for many, there's no real maturing. It's a reminder that your worth and your value has nothing to do with the shoes that you wear. It has nothing to do with the car that you drive or the expensive gadgets that you possess. Is that, is that shocking? Do we, do, we, do we need to hear this often? That you don't have to have the latest and greatest uh, iPhone or Android phone, you know, that you spend, was it a thousand or twelve hundred dollars to get the latest one? We don't need those things. They don't define us, they don't determine our worth. Here, an important saying don't spend money. Don't spend money that you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people that you don't like. But isn't that. The rat race of, of our society, of our culture. We like to spend money. We don't have it. We buy it on credit. And you try to do it to impress people that you don't like. Doesn't sound like a, a winning formula. Here, we think also about covetousness. The Lord boils it down for what it is. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire... And covetousness, which is idolatry. The Lord warns us to love God or love money. You cannot do both well. You cannot have two masters. If you love money, we're told that is idolatry, it's covetousness. We have warnings about the love of money. First Timothy six ten. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. 
and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's not that love of, love of money is the root of all evil, no. The love of money is the root of all, all sorts of evil. That loving money will lead to other things. And this is why the love of money and covetousness eventually leads to theft, because you have to have it. You think about how deceptive our hearts are. I desire it. Becomes, I, I actually need it. And then I have a right to it. And then it follows, I can appropriate it for myself. So then, theft then was no longer, there, there, there's no transgression, there's nothing wrong with it. Because the desire led to need, led to a right, and then you take it. So there's unbelief. There's greed. What about laziness? Is it the case that laziness often is involved with theft? There's been negligence, abdication of your responsibilities. Maybe another way to say laziness is procrastination. Right? Procrastination, children, is, is another way to say laziness later. Eventually leads to theft. See, the, the person, the sluggard who didn't, who didn't plow in the fall, he's left with this big problem is he has no harvest. So he can just admit he did wrong and go to people and beg them for their charity, which is probably his best situation. Or he can steal. He can save face and steal. You think about idleness and laziness. They themselves are violations of the Eighth Commandment, to which we must turn away from. Here, there are a number of assumptions about the Eighth Commandment and about theft. Theft presupposes the concept of private property. If there were no private property or private ownership, there would be no theft. That's assumed. Thou shalt not steal assumes that you have rightful ownership of something. But it's not, it's not as if it ends there. You think about the very principles of private property taught in God's word, Acts 5.4, regarding the matter of Ananias and Sapphira. Here's the apostle speaking. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Here, the word of God establishes the principle of private property. Theft is also defined by God. It's not defined by man. Just because the majority of people also do it, or accept it does not make it morally acceptable. Just because the common person says, hey, that's, that's not really bad. It doesn't mean that we're allowed to do it. Just because the government does not enforce it or punish for it doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. There's warnings in scripture in Ecclesiastes 8. The punishment for a crime is not quickly carried out. Uh, the hearts of the people will be filled with schemes to do wrong. This is one of the primary roles of government is to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. The bottom line is, when God calls it theft, then it is sin. It must be forsaken. It must be repented of. Theft is not only of material goods. There's other things that we can steal other than material wealth. There's a theft of time. Here, perhaps... You can tell me, well, there's a difference between someone who's paid by the hour versus someone who's salaried, because the salaried person is paid to get, paid to finish a project versus paid to do work for an hour. Okay, fine, I'll give you that. But the bottom line is, if you're being paid for a full day's work, then it must mean that you must accomplish a full day's work. That's the theft of time. There's also the theft of effort. If you have a half-hearted or a half-minded effort in your work, then your output will not be great. But is it safe to assume that when you're being paid to do a job, that you're going to use your full effort? We're not even factoring in the legitimacy of degradation of, of labor, meaning as, as the day goes on, you start to get tired. That, that's, that's understandable. But if you're half-hearted in your work all the time. This tells you something. Theft is not merely between a man and a man. Theft can be from a magistrate, from the government, 
that our Lord Jesus is the one who has commanded taxes to be paid. Romans 13, 7, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. How do you put a price on fear and honor? The answer is you can't. But Jesus is saying, not only is payment due, but there must be the proper respect and honor shown to those who are in authority. It doesn't matter if you didn't vote for him or her. You must show due respect to your civil rulers because that is part of our witness as Christians. No matter what sinful practices, immoral behaviors they support, we must still show respect to those who are in authority. It doesn't matter that you didn't vote for that person. Here we think about theft from God. Not only theft from men, there's theft from God. God speaks about robbing him in his tithes. Malachi 3.8 Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Here, the warning comes. If you regularly find yourself short or lacking, plagued with breakdowns and unplanned costs, could that be the modern equivalent of the devourer that God spoke about in Malachi 3? When crops don't bear and grapes fall from the vine. Here we think about things that we have that can break down. <clears throat> the bottom line is God will take. <clears throat> At least you won't have it. It's like earning wealth and putting it in a pocket with holes in it. It will vanish. God will take it. Here we think also about robbing God, not only of tithes, but robbing God of time on the Lord's day. Robbing God of time on the Lord's day. It's not merely the Lord's morning or the Lord's hour. It's the Lord's day. You can argue with me all you want about sunset to sunset or midnight to midnight. Whatever's the case, 24-hour period. It's not an hour. It's not the morning. It's the whole day. I've heard all kinds of excuses. It's just not something that my family has ever done. We'll start doing it. Start doing it now. It's time to start. There will always be competition from pro sports, from real estate, from retail. There will always be competition regarding the Lord's Day. Satan thinks, if I can rob God's people of the Lord's Day, much will be lost regarding spirituality and he's right he's entirely right perhaps at times it's the restarting of old habits the restarting of old habits do not be resistant to change make the effort here we think about the simple principle you talk to people who want to start a workout program i mean it's usually not now it's usually in a another uh, two months, the beginning of January, right? You go to the gym, January, beginning of January, man, that place is crowded, right? But then, uh, but you give it a few weeks, right? And it's like, man, you don't have to wait in line for anything, right? You could, you could use a dozen treadmills if you wanted to, if you could. And, and you think about how, <clears throat> if someone really wants to do something, they're going to find a way. Their obstacles, they will circumvent them. It's like a steeplechase event. There's obstacles, of course. You're going to circumvent, circumvent them. This is, if you really want to do something, you want obedience, you're going to find a way to get around it. You're going to find a way to get it done. And if you don't want to do it, you'll find all kinds of excuses. So regarding the Lord's Day, stop making petty excuses. Start obeying the Lord. Here, there's another principle. To honor the Lord's Day first requires diligence on the other six days. So if we're slacking in our work on the other six days, then oftentimes that means we're having to do work on the Lord's day. There's, there's got to be diligence the other days. Here, the simple instruction from verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. There must be a termination. There must be an end of things related to theft. Stop doing it. We must break old sinful habits. You think about the dreaded questions that follow. Wait a minute. If we're not allowed to steal, 
then that means I can't do this, 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 and this. Yes, that's correct. And that means a new life. It means new habits. It means new trusts. It means a new way of living. It requires that you trust God to provide for you because he has given you exceedingly great promises. The bottom line, we're called, stop justifying your actions. Stop making excuses for old sinful habits. Give it up. Stop doing it. Live unto the Lord Jesus. So that's the first point. Stop stealing. We have the second point. Labor diligently in honest work. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Perhaps you're asking the question, well, what is honest work? Well, we should talk about that. Honest work. Well, first off, honest work means that it is first not dishonest work. There's not cheating. There's not swindling or defrauding of others. There's not a promising of one thing, promising great big and delivering small, small. So it's not dishonest work. The work is, is honest, meaning that it's godly or upright work. I can give you some examples of unlawful callings. A friend of mine uh, once pastored in Las Vegas, and he had to deal with this. That you cannot be a Christian stripper or an exotic dancer. This is not permissible. You can't be a fortune teller or a drug dealer. And contrary to what the world says on ESPN, you can't be a professional gambler. You can't be a mafia member or a gang member. You can't be a procurer or a pimp. These are all unlawful callings. I hope you understand why. Think for a moment. Think back to high school biology. There were these things called symbiotic relationships. I realize how old I am because some of the terms have changed. They're no longer the same. Uh, there was altruism, commensalism, and parasitism. But then altruism has turned into mutualism. You think about what a thief does. Uh, it's, it's something along the lines of predation, being a predator, but Predators normally kill their prey, or perhaps more it's like parasitism. The bottom line is in parasitism, you have a relationship between two, two uh, species or organisms where, where one profits and the other loses. And in theft, the most damaging thing is that somebody must lose if one person is the game. It's the exact, exact same fault with gambling. Somebody has to lose, someone's going to gain. In a lawful calling, it's the opposite spectrum, that of altruism or mutualism. Both sides profit. I think recently we, we had a light fixture put in. We hired uh, an electrician, and he shows up, or, or their employees show up. They cut a hole in our ceiling. They, they put this light fixture in. It cost several hundred dollars. And the bottom line is they profited because they got our money, and we profited because we have a new light fixture in, installed. Both sides profit. This is what is expected in a lawful calling. I'll give you some examples of lawful callings. I hope they're familiar. For someone to be a carpenter, our Lord Jesus was a carpenter. Surely that must have been a lawful, acceptable profession. What about being a shepherd? A far, or a farmer, right? someone who raises sheep or cattle or chickens. You know, Moses was a farmer. We have a fisherman, not the PH type. The F, starting with F, fishermen. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. And uh, at some point later on in the Gospels, they actually went back to it, to fishing. Being a gardener, this is what Adam did. Adam was a gardener, tending the garden. Here, Perhaps you've noticed that people nowadays tend to shy away from hard work. When you think about manual labor, the trades, being an electrician, a plumber, a welder, going into construction. These things people tend to shy away from. They look down on them. Shouldn't be the case. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. 
So that instruction from 1 Thessalonians 4.11, it doesn't exclude white-collar, doesn't exclude white-collar work, desk jobs, but at least commends manual labor. And the Proverbs talk about how for the man who does manual labor, at least his sleep at night is good, meaning he's done, he's done a lot of labor, sweat equity, and afterwards he's tired. He can go to sleep easily, and that's a blessing. We see that this hard work even shows up in colleges, in universities. People shy away from the hard sciences. I noticed in my years of employment that in the engineering field, pretty much all the jobs in that company were held by foreigners, immigrants. They were hired from outside the country. Where are all our native people? The, the native people who are taking these jobs, they should have been taking these jobs, but apparently it seems like they were shying away from the hard work of study in college. Here we think about the duty of hard work. The term used here in verse 28, let him labor. So this is labor meaning toil, the labor with wearisome effort. The choice of words there was, was purposeful. When you think about the model of hard work, we see that in the father and the son. John 5.17, my father is working until now and I am working. This is what the father does. This is what the son does. That work is considered good. In other time periods, there was, from the perspective of the church, they viewed uh, the ministry as above all the other fields, and all, all the other common, uh, common callings were considered inferior. But that was simply wrong. God doesn't tell us that. The goal for everyone should not... We should not all be ministers. That's, that's, that's not the goal. That there ought to be people who are skilled in, in various fields. A friend of mine who is a ruling elder, he's, he's more mature, he's advanced in age, and he's thought about uh, giving up his, his work. But eventually, as I got to knowing him, I looked at him, and I said to him, you are extraordinarily gifted in business. I mean, I look at his business, how, how, how much it thrived. And I said to him, you know what? It seems like the broader church needs people like you who are gifted in this way and are willing to give generously for the work of the church. Meaning that there's opportunities that he has to witness, that, that he can speak to his people. It's a privately owned company. So he speaks to his employees uh, about the gospel. No, no one fires him. No, no one says, hey, you violated my rights. Hey, you, you've offended me. You've, you've used the name of Jesus Christ. No, 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 no one does this because they know he's a just boss. He's a kind boss. He's a caring boss. There ought not to be that distinction. It was wrong to have it. Callings, common callings are honored by God. Here we think about labor and the context of creation, the fall and redemption. Work was not the curse of the fall. Adam and Eve were given tasks. They were given work in the garden before the fall. You think about Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That he had a, he had a job. His responsibility was to cultivate the garden. And Eve had a job. She was supposed to help Adam in it. They were supposed to work together. Here we think also about the curse on labor due to the fall. By the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread. That the ground will produce thistles. Here, the duty to labor was already there. And with the fall, there were various curses. One was upon labor. Perhaps some of you have seen this. You see this every day. Things break down, things fall apart. Things don't hold together easily. If you ignore it, it, it goes poorly. If you neglect it, it goes even worse. This is part of the curse of the fall. If you are a teacher with ele elementary school students, 25 or 30 of them, if you walk out 
the door because you suddenly have an upset stomach and you come back, you will find the classroom in disarray. This is part of the, the curse of the fall. We think also about redemption, God's blessing on labor and redemption. The curse remains, but it's coupled with God's mercy and his love and his exceedingly great promises. You have some idea of this in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. God calls us to diligence, and this is the means by which he provides for his people. Here we have a necessary rule regarding work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Very simple rule, is it not? If this person is unwilling to work, then he shouldn't expect to eat, nor should we allow him to eat. Is this rule only limited within the church? Or should it apply to the world also, to non-Christians? It seems like it's a rule that's universal, just as the Ten Commandments are universal. right? Ten Commandments are not just to believers, it's to non-believers too. Here, what does idleness do? Idleness leads to greater sin. That we care for the poor, does that mean that we allow able-bodied, idle people to be able to eat without work. Here, there is such a thing as charity, but there's also a question about enabling. Does caring for the poor necessarily mean that we must enable them? We think also about the American culture and the things in our society that negatively affect us. It's so easy for someone outside the culture to come in and see all of our problems, all of our cultural sins. But it's a bit harder for us to see it because we're in it. Think, for example, of what this is. We have among us, in our society, we have a love of leisure. There is a love of leisure. But there's also a desire for the finer things in life. And generally, those things don't mix so well. If we have a love of leisure, and we like the finer things, eventually, our credit will run out. Think about even the term for the oldest living generation right now. They're called the greatest generation. They knew the value of work. And there's an understanding. Once they're gone, who's going to do all the work? They were also the ones. They were diligent. Yet they were frugal. They learned how to live on less. And they always... They, they, had these, they had these heart pains when they see food being wasted. Right? You, you've seen them before. Right? Hey, there's all this food. They, they walk around. You know, their, their wives walk around with Ziploc bags in their purses because, hey, that, that food's going to be wasted. We, we gotta, oh, I couldn't finish this meal. I can't just throw it in the garbage. I've got to take it home. Here, they were the diligent ones. They set godly examples for us to follow. What about the retirement trap? Have you heard about this? In our culture, people tend to retire, and they tend to do little to nothing of value afterwards. It might involve a whole lot of golf. Uh, it may be difficult for them to make even uh, one appointment during the week. They start to lose track of which day of the week it is. Here, God has blessed you enough in your finances that you are able to retire from your occupation, especially that of hard labor, then you've been exceedingly blessed. Yet, we should consider what opportunities the Lord has given you and what gifts that he has given you that you might continue to serve him. You think even the example of the Levites. Was it that the Levites served between the age of 25 to 50, and at 50 they retired. But if you look at Psalm 90, of our years are 70, or if due to strength, 80, from 50 to 70 or 50 to 80, there's still many years left. And part of their work as retired Levites was they were supposed to assist their brethren. Give them guidance. This is important. Here we think also about our children, the younger generation. We should be thinking about them. 
that this no work, no eat principle applies also to them. That the house and the yard chores, jobs in the neighborhood, these are all good for them. Because part of a culture, a habit of hard work, it's not something they learn as adults. It should be taught even from a young age. That they should be involved in helping to cook, helping to clean up in the house chores. You think about how skilled young people are these days, how many hours they spend playing video games, and that amounts to a whole lot of wasted time and effort. Here, we should be training up the younger generation. Young people, you must not be allergic to hard work and sweat. There ought to be a willingness. There ought to be a diligence. Whatever the Lord has you do, there must be diligence applied to it. There must be industry applied to it. So this is the second point. Labor diligently in honest work. We have the third point. Give generously. In the latter part of verse 28. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here what we have is a great transformation. From a sinful taking to a generous giving. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that a person is regenerated. They come to see their need in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are everything that I need. That instead of stealing, you've commanded me to work, to be diligent, to trust in you, and that I should share with those who have need. That the Lord requires of us that we be good stewards of what God has provided for us. And he provides through a lawful calling. And then he doesn't stop there. He begins to share with others who have need. Here, we think about the Eighth Commandment. It requires that we not only take care of our own estate, but we also should help to take care of the estates of others. These were some of the laws that we had in the Old Testament regarding if you notice your neighbor's ox or his donkey wandering off, you had a duty to take that ox or that donkey back to your neighbor. Now, you might be saying to me, hey, most people don't have an ox or a donkey, but that's immaterial. You think about the value of the laws. They're case laws, meaning this is a principle that applies to us today. That if, if you notice your neighbor who's on vacation, his front door is wide open, there's something wrong. Something ought to be done to uh, help your neighbor's estate. Here, perhaps at times, there's some difficulty for us regarding giving, that step of giving. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Here, this is something that you and I are called to receive by faith and then do it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The world understands receiving. The world understands taking. The world understands misappropriation. But by faith, you can understand it is more blessed to give than to receive. You can look at how the people that you give to are entirely unworthy. Well, they're just going to squander it. Whatever's the case, you stop and think, who is the one who has given to us? Perhaps people ask that question. Why should I give to anyone else? No one's ever given to me. Well, this is a gospel moment. This is a gospel opportunity. Either it is a healthy and necessary reminder, or it is the gospel, the good news that comes to you. When has anyone ever given to you? The gospel comes to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. He finds people who are necessarily all unworthy. He finds people who are squanderers, thieves, swindlers, drunkards, fornicators. Nobody that's worth saving. Yet he is the one by the power of Holy Spirit who takes a ravenous giver and transforms him that he might be an exceedingly generous giver. 
This is how we know hearts are changed. The person who grasps at everything for himself suddenly says, you know what? The Lord's given me plenty and I want to share with others. This is how you know there's the power of the Holy Spirit because hearts and desires can and do change. Here, we think about how God was exceedingly generous in the good news of the gospel. He had one only begotten son, precious, holy, without any blemish. And he's saying, I will trade that for the dregs of society, for those who are completely worthless, for those who have earned only one thing, that is condemnation and death. Oh, that's two things. I'm sorry. That's two things. I've been warned by that, my son and my wife, famous people. I'll give you two words and they give three. That's, that's two. So we think about how it wasn't a small sum of money or a little bit of Christ's time. It was his entire life that he shed his blood on the cross on behalf of sinners, unworthy sinners. Not a one, not a one was worthy of his death. And you think about how Jesus did it joyfully. For the joy set before him, he despised the cross, scorning its shame. You think about how the Lord Jesus indeed is generous with us. That he gladly shared his heavenly eternal inheritance with us. That we who are poor might become rich. That it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he who was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the hope of the gospel that you have. That you who have nothing have been given eternal riches in Jesus Christ. You traded your sins and your misery and your transgressions. He took them. He paid for them on the cross. And he gave you instead this grand trade. He gave you his righteousness. So that when you stand before God, you stand. And God, what he sees is he sees a sinner who is clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he has given us garments of salvation. This is why he calls us to be diligent. This is why he calls us to share with those who have need. Because our Lord Jesus is one who willingly shared with us. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you indeed are holy.